Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So more signs emerging that the global manufacturing recession has arrived in America. One question, maybe two. Does it become more entrenched and does it spread? I'm pleased to say that joining us here in New York City is Luigi Zangala's University of Chicago Booth School Finance Professor. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Help me answer that question or those questions. Does it become more entrenched and does it spread beyond manufacturing? I think that uh, the good news is that uh, the rest of the economy seems to be pretty strong. And uh, so I don't think it will spread as... uh, as of today, but uh, I think it's important to keep an eye on what's happening on the trade front, because if the things were to deteriorate there, then I think uh, that would be more of a problem for the US economy. At the epicenter of all of this was a weak ISM, an ugly ISM beneath the surface as well, the weakest we've seen in around about 10 years. And when you look at the complaints from sector to sector, it's not about the cost of capital, it is about trade. With that in mind, what can the Federal Reserve, what can central banks actually do to insulate these economies from the trade headwinds? So there is not a law that the Fed can do, but uh, uh, clearly by uh, making, uh, by reducing rates, might make uh, the dollar less strong and in a sense can expand ex- export. Uh, that's certainly what uh, the president would like. I don't know whether that's, this was uh, uh, Jay Powell do, but I think that's uh, the only channel the Fed has. I think that uh, this problem should be solved at the political level, not at the monetary level. We've had multiple growth scares in the last 10 years. Through this cycle, we've had two, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016. We're trying to understand whether 2018, 2019, going into 2020 is different, Professor. Is it different compared to what we have seen in this cycle already? I think it's a bit different because it's more global. And we see that uh, uh, Germany has slowed down significantly and, uh, and that might trigger a slowdown in entire Europe. I think that the Germany slowdown is a direct repercussion of a slowdown in China. In fact, I believe that uh, the German numbers are much more reliable than the uh, uh, Chinese numbers. So this is an indication that in China there is a slowdown. So this is uh, more at the the global level. And uh, I don't see a lot of uh, space for maneuver. This is uh, who has the space to maneuver uh, is the German uh, government, but it doesn't seem to be willing to do it. So uh, I think we need uh, uh, more fiscal expansion at the world level. Uh, The United States... uh, has done a lot in the past, even when maybe it was not needed to f- fiscally expand. So uh, we're left with uh, Europe taking its uh, uh, responsibility, and I don't see this coming. Within all your books, and particularly your book on American capitalism, which was so illuminating as a foreigner talking about you know, how we do things in America, so much like what John Farrell was just asking about is where the gains go to. If we have a manufacturing slowdown, that is a certain effect on people. If we have a service sector in financial expansion from all this, are those gains all going to the elite? Unfortunately, I have to say yes. I think that uh, <clears throat> so far, trade has benefited mostly a small elite and uh, has uh, penalized uh, Midwest uh, America. And uh, we have seen the reaction of this in the last uh, election. 
And I don't think that uh, anything major has been done to, to fix this problem. And I don't think it's un unique of, of the United States. Look at uh, uh, the United Kingdom. You have the same problem there. You have uh, uh, London that is very much uh, pro-Europe uh, in favor of trade and benefiting from the trade. And the rest of uh, England or the rest of the UK uh, that uh, don't benefit as well. This is the populist backlash. Let's talk about the economy right in front of us at the moment. The European economy has been weak now for, I would say, 18 months. Likewise for China. This started in spring 2018. In fact, some of this weakness predates the tariffs going on. It predates the ramping up of the trade war. With that in mind, it's not the United States leading the downturn here. The United States is lagging behind the rest of the world. So if we're going to look for a recovery, we need to see the rest of the world lead us out of that. It's not the US that's going to lead us out of this. The US is lagging. Do you see any leading indicators in the global economy right now, ex-US, that suggest that this story has started to bottom out? Um, not really. I think, unfortunately, I, w I wish I could uh, uh, give you a, a, some hope. But uh, no, I think that uh, uh, the slowdown in, in China is probably going to continue. And this will have repercussion in Europe. And uh, I don't see Europe uh, uh, restarting because... Uh, um, the the natural way where we start would be some uh, major fiscal package uh, originating in Germany, and I don't see the political will of that. You laugh when I say major fiscal package in, originating from Germany. You laugh, and that's an indication of how uh, unlikely this is anytime soon. I, eventually, they're not going to do it, but eventually when uh, there is a major recession in, in Germany. This laugh is not just reserved for you, Luigi. I should express myself um, quite clearly that I laugh at everyone that brings up the possibility of fiscal stimulus in Germany because I'm still trying to understand what the bite point is for the German government to change course. Exactly. You know how this works in Europe better than anyone. You have chaos, you have a crisis, then you finally have some kind of suboptimal solution. In Germany, quite clearly, a recession, a mild recession, is not enough to deliver fiscal stimulus. What is? I think that when uh, uh, the recession will bite Germany seriously and uh, this will create uh, political demand for intervention, eventually uh, they will intervene. But uh, so far, Germany has benefited from this uh, austerity policy because uh, they have exported their way out uh, of all the uh, cycles. And uh, the, the cost of adjustment has been uh, imposed on the rest of Europe. And, uh, and so I think that uh, is as if in, uh, uh, in the United States, you only look at Massachusetts, Massachusetts yeah. is benefiting from a more austerity package uh, because the costs are borne in Texas and in, in Illinois, and Illinois and Texas don't vote in Massachusetts. I think that's what uh, United um, Europe is about. I, I mean, the headlines in the last two hours out of Germany are just stunning. As you point out, John, there's no framework within those headlines of any fiscal adjustment. It's the weakest link. I, I wonder Europe how Lagarde right reads those headlines. I have no idea. I just think it's the weakest link in Europe right now. Luigi, never mind Lagarde, let's talk about Chancellor Merkel. So many people sung the praises of Chancellor Merkel for so long, and I don't think economic historians are going to be too kind to her in 10, 20, 30 years' time. There was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to restructure the German economy to take advantage of record low borrowing rates to change the export driven model that is the German economy. They haven't taken that opportunity. They haven't taken that opportunity at all. No, they've, they've not. In fact, they've done kind of the opposite. And, and mm. I think that uh, to understand the German spirit, you have to realize 
that the first Keynesian in history was actually Hitler, because Hitler used massively fiscal expansion uh, to restart Germany. And so in Germany, uh, the idea of using the fiscal stimulus is anathema because of this historical uh, uh, right. precedent. Right. Um, we're just we're out of time and we will do this later, but I've got to bring it up right now. Is, is Barcelona going to do a Tottenham? I mean, is that where we Did are Did you enjoy today? that game yesterday? Oh, that was just fabulous. 7-2. What happened to you? I don't know, but, but today's Barcelona Inter Milan, Against right? Inter, but Luigi supports my Inter- AC Milan. I know, but it's come on, it's Milan, it's Milan, right? No, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> one, one side is blue and black, the other side is red and black. Really? Are, I'm going to be showing the door of the studio here We are here the red and black half of Milan. Yeah, we are the losing side, but we're very committed to losing. It's like the Chicago Cavs. They always lose, but you love them. This is the Silvio Berlusconi side of of Milan, AC Milan. Actually, I started to to support them way before Silvio Berlusconi. This, unfortunately, dates me, but I supported Milan AC uh, back uh, in the time where it was a great team do, before Silvio Berlusconi. Before Berlusconi took over in the mid-80s. Yeah. Do they have a derby? A derby? Michael Barr, a derby is derby, and but And we, we play at derby. the same stadium, and it took place a couple of weekends ago. Have you ago. been to the um, Inter Milan, AC Milan? No, but I have been to Juventus Milan, uh, and it was a great game. And we also lost. <laughs> Can you buy the team with your next book royalties? I mean, AC Milan I think help, we could right? probably put some money together around this table. Although I have heard that they, uh, the French billionaire Mr. Arnaud, uh-huh. might be interested in a slice oh, of AC well, Milan. We will have the best jersey of all the teams. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go. Luigi Zangales, thank you. Right now, buffeted against all of this market angst, are the distractions of politics. Rosalind Matheson is with us right now. And the problem with her title, John, is she's international government executive editor, which means she is focused with her team on China, focused on impeachment and all that's going on in Washington, many other issues as well. John, why don't you bring in Rosalind on the prime minister speaking to the North? Is the speech different, John, if it's given in Manchester? In London? No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't make a difference. Let's bring in Roslyn, shall we? Good morning to you, Roslyn. Let's just start with the Prime Minister. The rule book for how this usually works is that they come up with a proposal, Sterling rallies, then the Irish throw a cold glass of water over the proposal, then Sterling sounds off again. Walk me through what the proposal is this time and where ultimately the EU and the Irish stand on it. Well, yeah, so he's just actually finishing his speech. We can see him on television now to rapturous scenes in Manchester to the party faithful um, where he talked a bit about Brexit, Brexit, but mostly about everything else. Um, His proposal is really quite different from what the Europeans have been putting forward. He's saying that he wants to keep Northern Ireland, which is the key question here in all of the Brexit negotiations, in a customs union with the UK, uh, therefore creating a border uh, with Europe through which goods would have to move. Uh, European objective is obviously to prevent a hard border on Ireland and preserve a single market for things to move through easily. So his proposal is quite different. Uh, the Europeans are saying they're going to look at it objectively. He's going to speak with the European Commission president tonight on the phone. He's already been hitting the phones to the leaders around Europe trying to sell this thing to them. The Irish have come out very quickly, as you can imagine, and said they're extremely concerned about it. So he's going to have a hard job ahead of him trying to get any traction on this one. Rosalind, what are relations like between the Irish and the UK government 
right now. There were reports that the British government actually briefed the Irish yesterday. In fact, the Irish were the only EU nation that were briefed on the proposal from the Prime Minister before today's address. And that the Irish leaked it. That's the accusation from some quarters in Britain right now. What do you make of that? And what does it mean for relations between the two countries? Well, at least there's certainly been an appetite for dialogue uh, between the Irish and between the British government. We've seen Boris Johnson go to meetings there, repeatedly stand up together on podiums and have press conferences afterward where the the rhetoric has been quite warm. Uh, The problem is that neither side will want to move on this, and Boris Johnson is adamant. But if he doesn't get the deal, if he doesn't get the deal he wants uh, in nine days from now, October 11, then he's going to move forward and crash out. Uh, And he's just said that he's not going to to budge on that. So what we've got is two polite but sort of immovable forces staring at each other right now and no one willing to give in the ground. Rosalind, can I ask the dumb foreign question? Does he want this to fail on purpose? There's certainly a narrative around those lines. What he's doing is he's saying this is it or nothing. He's hoping perhaps that his strong approach uh, and the running down of the clock will just force a deal to happen. There's also a school of thought that what he really wants is to be able to go out to the British people and say, look, I tried everything to give you Brexit. Parliament got in my way. The Europeans got my yeah. way. The Irish got <clears throat> my way. Um, therefore, I need to have an election and you need to give me a big, big mandate so I can come back and deliver for you. So the mandate, the, the narrative this- would be that I tried everything but I was stopped at every turn. Can baby Charlie vote? Can baby Charlie vote? <laughs> yeah. Baby Charlie's got to wait until he's a little bit older before okay. he votes on. We've got to wait for that. We're with Uncle John here in New York. Continue. Rosalind, just to wrap things up with you, how is this playing out in the court of public opinion with the electorate at the moment? This has quite clearly been a strategy of Mr. Cummings and Prime Minister Johnson to make out that everyone else is the reason that Brexit isn't going through. The institutions, the court, parliament, the EU the Irish, how successful are they pushing that agenda? Well, certainly we've just seen very rapturous scenes in Manchester, um, loud applause, backslapping, all that kind of stuff. That is the party faithful. The thing for us is to not to presume to know how people outside London, for example, are feeling. Uh, there's a strong base of support in rural areas for Boris Johnson, a strong base of support for making the Tories great again. Dare I say, that's the mantra he's been pushing. And people yeah. out there who really want to see Brexit done. Um, so it's quite possible that his tactics here have quite a lot of support. Um, and yeah. we need to be careful not to presume to know how an election might play out um, in London. Rosalind, we've got to leave it there. To you and our government team worldwide, thank you so much for continuing reporting. There's a little bit going on. John Stolfus with us, with Opcon. This is an important update because we've been, John and I have really been focused on the bond market and the dynamics there, and it's good to talk to John Stolfus about equities for it. John, let's begin with your decades of experience with the absolute mystery of October revenue and earnings seasons. Do you have a clue what we're going to see? Well, we'd have to, we'd have to think we're going to get a repetition of, of what we have seen in, in the last few quarters in that we think that uh, estimates are low enough at this point, have been brought down enough, and there's been enough guidance from uh, corporate chieftains that things are, are, are decidedly challenged in, in many uh, uh, ways uh, by the trade war, that expectations are likely to be beat once again. Uh, 
Um, how long this can last? Yeah. The second year of the trade war with potential right. for acceleration. If, we, if we've seen a re-rating in the last 24 hours towards rate cut and the way this the curve is steepening and all that, how much weight do you put in the flipped reciprocal of the yield market out to higher equity valuations? Do you, is there any weight to that, or do you ignore that right now? Uh, we, we've, we've, we've got to think that, you know, where interest rates are today from a historical perspective would indicate that equities are not overpriced. The, uh, the other thing is the demand for equities is just likely to increase as the baby boomer generation begins to actually retire and recognize that they, they need vehicles that offer more than a very slight coupon and need to at least have if they can if they when when they can find good companies the potential for capital appreciation the total return dividend growth story might make sense equities have support moving forward from what we can tell john i want to stay out there in 2020 and work through the growth scares of the past with you 2011 2012 back in 2013 the year after a growth scare has been pretty good pretty kind to investors in this cycle so 2013 after the 11 12 growth scare stocks up almost 30 percent for 2013 after the 15 16 growth scare stocks up in 2017 more than 19%. We're working our way through this 18-19 growth scare. Every year, of course, is different, John. We had our moments in 2017, which were largely about anticipating a rate cut. But looking out to 2020, how much harder is it to make the call, buy stocks off the back of the growth scare when we're already up 19% this year? Well, I, I've got to say this. I, I, I think what we're, the wonderful thing is that we really are only up 0.2%. from the high that we reached on September 20th of last year. So so far this year, spectacular as it looks, it it doesn't take into account, if you just look at where the year-to-date is, the devastation that had occurred in the fourth quarter, which we thought was fairly unreasonable. It was like a mugging. It was an overreaction and, and, and negative projection that we saw that brought the markets down as sharply as it did in the fourth quarter last year that haven't been realized yet. Yeah. John, one of your charms at Opco is you can really talk easily about the big banks because you're not with a big bank. <laughs> Give us your thoughts about the big banks. John Farrell's noted their movement uh, this year. Is it done? Uh, we, we wouldn't think so. Uh, we think that the big banks, and we think the big banks are an alpha call. So it, it's uh, uh, on an individual stock picking basis rather than on a, uh, on a beta or a or a, you know, an index call, a sector index call for that. But within the big banks, the reality is these guys don't pay. They pay next to nothing on deposits. They have credit card uh, uh, interest rates that, that look like it's the late 70s or early 80s when they charge on, on, uh, on, on, on balances. So we have to say, and, and, and evidence is from earnings that well, they may not get it from trading, uh, the the uh, the lending business is in, in good shape. The wages are still rising, so we'd have to think uh, we like that. It's our contrarian pick among the cyclical sectors that we like. John, why is it so disliked still, even though we've had some pretty solid performance from that sector this year? Just looking at some of the big names, the likes of City, they've delivered some really strong gains through 2019. And yet when you ask people about financials, <clears throat> they pull a face as if they have performed terribly over the last six to nine months. Uh, you know, Jonathan, it's it, it's just it really shows human nature. I think in many ways, and it, it just it, it's one of those sectors we would think that is is you you buy when they're not popular. 
so that you don't have to chase them later when finally the realization uh, comes in that uh, these things are what makes everything move. Everything floats on credit. As long as the bond market is in mm. real trouble, uh, these these are, are likely to uh, essentially fund the system. You know, the, no. real, the real bugaboo here is, is, is the trade war. That's, that's the problem, the tariffs. Otherwise, well, we were in an economic recovery globally right. before March of 2018. John, very quickly, this came up yesterday. If the trade war is cleared, who benefits? Emerging market international stocks or U.S. large caps? We think all do because we think with, mm-hmm. if, if we got to deal with, with China, the dollar moves lower. Mm-hmm. currencies outside of the U.S. rise on expectations of increased growth, a negative overhang right. of the trade war removed. We think it's emerging. We think it's developed international. Yeah. And the U.S. Would, would, would participate in that. Very good. Uh, John Stolfus, thank you so much. With Opco, there's some enthusiasm on the equity markets. Right now, Andrew Hollenhorst with us. He is with Citigroup. He's their chief U.S. economist. What is the distinctive feature for you right now in the classic U.S. equation, Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX? What matters to Andrew Hollenhorst? Well, I think they all matter, Tom, but what we have been looking at in terms of the strength of this economy is C. We've seen consumption that's really held up very, very well, um, despite the weakness that we're seeing in manufacturing, the weakness that we're seeing in investment. So I think that's what we're watching payrolls for. Does the strong labor market continue to drive that consumption story? That that can't be permanent. I mean, if, you know, consumption 68 or 69 once in a while, it's 70% of the American economy. You know, and there's dynamics here, folks. Is there a permanence to consumption alone? So I think you have to put in the bottom on some of the weakness that we've seen in the industrial sector. Um, when you see ISM manufacturing at 47.8, that's a concerning number, and that concerns you about, is this going to spill over into the broader economy? Is this going to cause consumption to slow as well? Um, if this can kind of stabilize here, then 2019 can look like 2016. 2016, we got down to 48 on the manufacturing index, and then we kind of bottomed out and turned back around, and we continued with the story of strong consumption. So I think that can happen again, but I I would agree that we need to see at least some bottom here in terms of what's going on in the industrial sector. It's a theme, Andrew, that's come up again and again and again on this program over the last couple of weeks. The three growth scares that we've had, the current one, the 15-16 one, and the one back in 2011-2012. Andrew, every growth scare is different. All three have been led by manufacturing. Just how different is this one, though? I think this one is different. Um, in some ways, it's harder to attribute this to something that's transitory. 2015, 2016, I think you could see what had happened with oil prices. You had seen a U.S. economy that was very oriented towards investment in oil and energy-related industries. Um, and this slowdown in investment has been more broad-based, and it's more a symptom of the global slowdown. So I think that's what's a little bit more concerning here. If the global growth story continues to worsen, yeah. it does seem with each data print it does worsen. Um, then, you know, it's harder and harder to see how the U.S. kind of goes it alone. Andrew, we were saying that there's been these times in the recent tumultuous months where the the weather vane changes, and maybe that happened yesterday off U.S. data, and today the German forecast is well, and it's it's exposed or uh, shown in curve steepening. And in this case, it's where the two-year yield comes in. Now, I don't want you to be bond guy from Citigroup, 
But are we going to revisit a whole new round of guessing the number of rate cuts by this Fed central bank? Yeah, I think after the number yesterday, we're back in that mode again. We're back in that mode. See, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you can see the, the pricing of October going up again. Um, and so, I, you know, let's see what happens with ISM non-manufacturing. Let's see, let's see what happens with payrolls. For the Fed, it really is going to depend on do you see this spilling over more broadly. And still, it's pretty isolated in manufacturing as of today. Um, but we'll see what the numbers bring. Yeah, well said. Friday. Well, Andrew, the other question is whether you should wait if you're on the Federal Reserve. If you wait for it to show up in claims, if you wait for it to show up in hours worked in the payrolls report and that starts to break down, you're a little late, aren't you? Yeah, so you want to be early. You want to be aggressive. I think that they've tried to do that with the rate cuts they've delivered so far, since arguably we hadn't seen that much weakness in the domestic data. Now you're really running into the problem of you want to be early and aggressive, but you have limited policy room. There's only so much room to cut. So, you know, you're kind of walking that fine line between delivering enough or over delivering and then maybe ending up with fewer bullets when you wish you had them. And then they face a ton of questions about the efficacy of the policy they are deploying, Andrew, whether rate cuts in this environment actually help, do they? Yeah, so we're seeing some effect in the housing market. I think you've seen the most recent data a little bit firmer, and that's an effect of lower rates. But, you know, where you'd really like to see this is stronger in business investment. And I think there's very little evidence right yeah. now that lower rates are actually causing any kind of, you know, pickup in that activity. Nice brief. Andrew Hollanders, thank you so much for Citigroup today. Thanks, Andrew. It is an extraordinary set of interviews. Mr. Rubenstein uh, with a gentle lady who is polarizing across America. Here is David Rubenstein with a subtle question for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. How does it feel to get up in the morning and know that 330 million Americans want to know the state of your health that day? How does it feel encouraging? As cancer survivors know, that dread disease is a challenge, and it helps to know that people are rooting for you. Now, it's not universal. (laughs) When I had pancreatic cancer in 2009, there was a senator whose name I don't recall, but he said I would be dead within six months. That senator is now no longer alive. But you can't remember his name. (laughs) No, I don't remember his name. Uh, But your current view is that as long as you're healthy and able to do the job, you intend to stay on the court. Is that correct? As long as I'm healthy and mentally agile. And the tone there of a gentle lady of a certain vintage. Joining us now with his peer-to-peer, and again, doing it wonderfully with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, David Rubenstein. David, congratulations on a wonderful interview. Let me start with the other side and some of the humor there. Why should conservatives, why should originalists, why should those of a camp of Justice Scalia, why should they listen to this conversation with RBG? Well, first of all, uh RBG was a very good friend of Justice Scalia and uh, 
and there's a conversation that I had with her about how they became such good friends, sharing their interests in opera, even though they disagreed a great deal on legal matters. I think she's a historic figure. She is the second woman on the Supreme Court of the United States and will have served longer on the Supreme Court than any other woman. Uh, she's serving longer than, uh, than Sandra Day O'Connor. And she's uh, become a rock star as you may have seen in today's New York Times, Tom Friedman's column basically talks about my introducing her at a recent Kennedy Center event, and she got a standing ovation over the weekend because of the things she stands for, a woman who really led the charge for equality and gender equality in the law, a woman who's battled three bouts of cancer and still survived and living on the Supreme Court doing quite well. So I think people admire her in many ways, and she's obviously a very, very smart person, top of her class at Harvard Law School and Columbia Law School, uh, successful marriage for more than 50 years to, to a great tax lawyer who's unfortunately passed away, and uh, a person that, that many women really admire for, and, and, and men as well, admire for her, 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 her intellect, her gumption, her um, overcoming physical uh, problems. Oh, I think she's, you know, the notorious RBG, as she's been called. <laughs> David, how does Justice Ginsburg feel about the perhaps politicization of the court, given some of the recent appointments to the court? Well, she's not going to comment on that directly and did not. I mean, she just, you know, when you are um, a Supreme Court justice, you don't, people don't usually ask you questions that you have to answer. You can deflect them, and and she deflected things like that. But I think you know generally her view is that uh, uh, the court. I, I'm speaking. My my sense is that she that the court has been probably been somewhat more politicized than she would prefer. Yeah. Not for for anything that the justices have done, but just the way that the confirmation processes work. Yeah. Her confirmation process was not as um, confrontational as some we've seen recently. Uh, Cass Sunstein, in his wonderful book, Impeachment, takes an interlude, David Rubenstein, in the middle of the book, and the Harvard Law professor says, okay, here's the originalists, and here's the few shades of originalists, the conservatives, and here's the many shades of a more liberal, more modern Supreme Court, Justice Breyer and, and RBG and the rest of them. Define exactly her liberality as she contributes to American law. What what is the school of RBG? Well, remember she was criticized, as was uh, Justice O'Connor, by some who say that they are incrementalists. In other words, um, there were some women's groups that were not in favor of uh, of RBG getting on the Supreme Court because they said not not all, but some women's groups said she wasn't strong enough in supporting Roe v. Wade, and that's because she had a different way to analyze that particular case. I think that uh, she's basically a, a very fastidious um, student of the law, a great law school student, and she believes in incremental change, I, bit, I believe, and therefore she may not be um, you know, everybody's uh, favorite justice in terms of doing all the things that some of the, her supporters would like her to do, but I think she's well-respected by other justices because of the way she really analyzes the law, and she writes her opinions with great, great care. Um, she doesn't have uh, other people writing them. She writes the opinions, and she is, they're very meticulous, and she obviously writes a lot of dissents. So, David, I know that Justice Ginsburg has said that she plans on remaining on the court uh, as her health allows, but did she give you a sense of kind of how she views her legacy? She's had such a long tenure on the court. 
Um, many people don't like to talk about their legacy uh, while they're still in a particular job, and she doesn't really want to talk about it in quite that way. But I think she will be, she recognizes that she'll be seen as the second woman on the Supreme Court. As I said, probably the longest serving woman to have served on the court. Uh, and she's seen as somebody that rises above the view of most justice. Most justices are not known by the public, but she is known by the public in such an extent that she gets standing ovations yeah. everywhere she goes. At the National Book Festival this year, there were about 12,000 people lined up just to hear her talk about um, you know, her life. And there are, she does uh, speaking events around the country now. And one in Kansas recently, I think she had 18,000 people show up. Uh, so it's very unusual for justice of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, many of whom are unrecognizable to the public, to get that kind of attention. It harkens back to Oliver Wendell Holmes. David Rubenstein, again, congratulations. Appear to be a conversation. Uh, we're going to do this across two weeks with Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg. Uh, thank you so much, David Rubenstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.